0: You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Then sang Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, on that day, that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly, bless Yahweh, Hear, O kings! Give ear, O princes! To Yahweh I will sing. I will make melody to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Yahweh, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before Yahweh, even Sinai before Yahweh, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anath, in the days of Jael, The highways were abandoned, and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel, when new gods were chosen. Then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among forty thousand in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel, who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless Yahweh. Tell of it, you who ride on white donkeys, you who sit on rich carpets, and you who walk by the way, to the sound of musicians at the watering places where they repeat the righteous triumphs of Yahweh, the righteous triumphs of his villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of Yahweh. Awake, awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of Yahweh marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Makir, marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar, faithful to Barak, into the valley they rushed at his heels, among the clans of Reuben, There were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan, why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risked their lives to the death, Naphtali too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought. Then fought the kings of Canaan, at Ta'anak, by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From the heaven the stars fought, from their courses they fought against Sisera. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kishon, march on, my soul, with might. Then loud beat the horse's hooves, with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Meroz, says the angel of Yahweh, curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of Yahweh, to the help of Yahweh against the mighty. Most blessed of women Bijael, the wife of Heber, the Kenite, of tent dwelling women, most blessed. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head. She shattered and pierced his temple between her feet he sank, he fell, he lay still, between her feet, he sank, he fell, where he sank, there he fell, dead. Out of the window she peered, the mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princesses answer, indeed she answers herself, have they not found and divided the spoil? A womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil. So may all your enemies perish, O Yahweh, but your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might, and the land had rest for forty years. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 702 of this podcast. Today is Friday, September 1st, 2023. And that was a reading of the song of Deborah and Barack. There wasn't a whole lot said about Barack, if you didn't notice. It's mostly Deborah and Jael, and then all you other people who helped and then there's a little bit in there about hey how come this tribe didn't answer the call how come this tribe just stayed put where they were how come this tribe just kept their heads down and waited for everything to blow over it's interspersed throughout and it's not the main feature but there is definitely a elbow in the ribs of shame on you guys two tribes get special praise and attention. They risked their lives. They answered. They came and they fought and bless them. And the rest of y'all, you should probably do some soul searching about why you stayed safe in your homes, safe in your towns, safe in your beds while other men were fighting to liberate your country. And that is the way to think of it is this is oppression of Israel, and this is a war. It's a war of domination, wherein it's going to be one side or the other, but it's not going to work for these very disparate worldviews to be at peace together. There can't be peace between, at root, Yahweh and the gods of these nations, or Yahweh's people and the people who worship these other gods. There can't be peace. In the Old Testament, we have a nation. And that's actually even the promise that God makes to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he will make of their descendants a great nation. And actually, a word about that or two is in order because I have come across this attitude that is maybe quiet in most cases, but I've heard it explicitly Expressed And even just yesterday, as I was listening to Wayne Grudem's Politics According to the Bible, apparently it is somewhat popular, and it has been somewhat popular in the past quarter century or so. Arguably, it was popular centuries ago during the Reformation. You had some who didn't believe Christians should ever serve in government, ever get involved in civil government, or law enforcement or the military turn the other cheek and all that for centuries has meant to some Christians that there's no place for using force by anyone ever. But then that's a curious thing, as Wayne Grudem argues. That's a curious thing because the Bible talks of nations, both in the Old Testament, yes, and also in the New Testament. Your Old Testament patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob— were promised that God himself would make of their descendants a great nation. God himself would raise up from their descendants, from their offspring, their children and grandchildren and so on and so forth, a nation and a people that had been no nation, which is to say you have God, it seems, asserting the goodness of nations. And even just think with me for a moment about God being a God of order and putting the lonely in families, but then also saying to Adam in the beginning that the first thing that was not good was that the man would be alone. So God makes a helpmeet suitable for Adam and blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, what happens when be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it requires order and structure as humanity spreads out over the planet. What do you do? How do you organize? How do you order people? Maybe initially it's families, but then as families are fruitful and multiply and the children grow up and they move away and then additional children grow up and they move away and then generations pass, coming and going, you have communities of multiple families where you have to figure out how are these families going to work together, how are they going to live in community, how are they going to resolve disputes, if there are disputes, if there are conflicts, if there are things to figure out, decisions to be made as to how they're going to allocate their resources, where is so-and-so going to live, and who's going to keep track of the boundaries of their land, who's going to make the decision as to what is a fair price for Buying and selling various things, animals and finished goods, manufactured goods, raw materials that have been harvested, food, water. Who's going to set prices? Who's going to, perhaps I should say, judge what are some standard weights and measures? Because personally, I don't like the idea of prices being set and fixed. I think economically, that's not the best idea particularly if you're going to have different weights and measures used for prices based on who's buying and who's selling, that would seem to be a repudiation of God loving equal weights and measures, not wanting us to have two sets of weights and measures, but who's going to establish what the weights and measures are? Who's going to standardize that so that there is order, so that you don't have somebody complaining that, wait a second, you sold the same measure of food to that guy for half as much as you sold it to me. What's going on there? Why are you willing to buy from this guy a few head of sheep at that price, but then you're not willing to buy from me at the same price? I feel like I'm being discriminated against. I feel like you're trying to cheat me or you're trying to cheat him. Somebody has to make those kinds of decisions. And when you get a community of several families they're not all going to have the same recognized authority because each family has its own head. Each household has, hopefully, a husband and a father who oversees that household. And then if there's a dispute between the children of one household and the children of another household, the heads of the households will get together and work it out and sit everybody down and hopefully have good judgment and judge with impartiality. But then as communities grow, you have a city over here and you have a city over there. And just like you can have the children of one family disagreeing or having a conflict with the children of another family, you can have the people who live in one city having a dispute with the people who live in another city. And before you know it, hyperbole takes over and the people of this city are saying, you know, the people from that city are always like that. They never do such and such. They always do such and such. We don't like them. We should go and get our pound of flesh. We should go and extract from them what we now believe has been taken unfairly. And if you don't have some kind of a wise judge, a wise person in authority in this city and in that city pretty soon, you have a conflict between cities. And so what actually tamps that down? or prevents conflict is civil government. Civil government, which will preside over the cause of those who perhaps by their own strength cannot enforce justice. They can't defend themselves. They can't protect themselves. Think here of, in the most extreme examples, widows and orphans. We can posit all we like about what God's original plan and design was, whether there would have been civil government, what the role of civil government would have been had there never been a fall into sin, if sin and death had never entered into the world through Adam. But the world we live in is the world where Adam did take that fruit that he was commanded by God not to take. Relationship with God was broken. Sin and death did enter into creation. And so now we have a sinful nature. Now the people in this family, and the people in that family have a sinful nature to contend with. The people in this town and that town have a sinful nature to contend with. And so having nations, which are cities and towns in a geographic region that shares a common culture, a common language, common values, typically a common religion, for the most part, having a nation helps to Tamp down conflicts before they spill over into something drastic, something deadly, something destructive and violent. Actually, having nations curbs the same forces, the same temptations, the same dynamics which prompted God to destroy all life on earth with a flood. Having a nation as a kind of common grace can be understood rightly in the context of what Paul writes to the church at Rome in the 13th chapter, where he says that the governing authority is a minister of God. For the Lord's sake, you should be subject to every governing authority, for no authority exists except what has been given by God. And we may scratch our heads about that when we think about how many people with authority throughout human history have abused their authority, they've done wicked things. But then perhaps the question that is more relevant, given the world that we do live in, more relevant than whether there would have been civil authorities or what that would have looked like, what their job would have been, what they would have been doing had there been no fall, no sin entering into the world. Perhaps the better question, given the world that we do live in, is what would happen if we didn't have any civil authority whatsoever. Would those men who have sinful desires and a sinful nature, if they weren't in positions of civil authority, would they not be doing wicked things? Would they not be doing sinful things? Or would they just be doing those sinful and wicked things without any kind of check and balance to restrain the evil in their own hearts or the temptation of the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. Perhaps that's a better question. And the or else here is not just in measuring what we have right now against perfection, a hypothetical perfection, but perhaps a better or else is to say you compare what we have now against if we didn't have even the good things that come along with civil government. In Christian theology, there is this idea of special grace, that comes through Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you have this idea of special grace, which is not just life, but it's eternal life. It's the resurrection of the dead for those who believe by God's power, not by our power, not by the power of our faith, but by the power of God's grace, his goodness, his kindness, But then there's this other category of grace besides special grace, which some who say there shouldn't be any kind of civil magistrate, civil authority, or Christians at least shouldn't be involved in that at all. That common grace is typified and glimpsed at at least when we read things like he sends his reins on the just and the unjust. It's glimpsed at in passages like John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, whosoever is not the whole world. We know that. Now, some get confused about that as well. There are universalists and they say, no, we're all going to the same place. All paths lead to God. And even if they're mixing in a lot of Christian theology about hell and judgment and the day of judgment and the lake of fire and all the rest, with their universalism, they'll say, that even those who have completely rejected Christ in this life, when they go to hell, they'll be purified. And after a time, they'll want out of hell. George MacDonald, the author of The Princess and the Goblin, which is a great little kid story, by the way, George MacDonald, Scottish churchman, very influential on C.S. Lewis, for instance, he subscribed to that kind of universalism. And that's unfortunate. John Adams subscribed to a kind of universalism. And even though the universalists are wrong, and they are wrong, there is a way in which, a sense in which, for this life, they're right. Insofar as God gives a common grace to all people, whether they are believers, whether they are righteous or they're unrighteous, whether they're wise or they're foolish. Civil magistrates, the civil government is an expression of common grace. Think also of the relationship of parents to children. When my children, eight and then a ninth do in November, when my children are born and they're growing up from little on up, love them as I do, I recognize that they're not perfect and they don't always do what they ought to. Sometimes they do selfish things, mean things, rude things. Sometimes they're very harsh with each other. Sometimes they're disrespectful to their mother and I. Sometimes they just flat out don't obey. We tell them to do something and they don't do it. And they don't want to do it. In the most egregious cases, they'll just say flat out, no. Now that's when they're very young. And we discipline that. We correct that because we love them. Because it's not good for that attitude to persist. It's not good for them. And it's not good for anybody around them. How would it be, let me ask this, to those who don't think that we should have a civil government, because we don't want to impose Christian morality, Christian ethics, the laws of God on those who don't believe. How would it be if as a parent, I said, I'm not going to discipline or correct my children for anything. I'm just going to try and keep them fed and hydrated and getting decent rest, observing basic hygiene, but I'm not going to put any kind of moral constraints on them until I'm sure that they're a Christian. And then I won't have to. I won't until I don't have to and then I still won't how would it be if I didn't train my children rewarding them when they do what is good and yes punishing disciplining them when they do what is evil how would that be would you call me a loving parent well some would unfortunately some would say yes that's the mark of a loving parent is a loving parent never spanks their child never grounds their child never reprimands their child, never criticizes their child, never rebukes their child. But then that's not biblical parenting. That is not what God's word calls parents to. And that's not the example that is set by God, who is our perfect father. I notice in reading some of the literature that has to do with men and manliness, there's quite a lot that fixates on father wounds, as they're called. And father wounds you can understand as what a father does and doesn't do, says and doesn't say to his children, particularly boys, which leaves a mark. As they grow up, as they become men on their own, they carry those father wounds with them, it's said, and they have to come to terms with those father wounds and come to a kind of forgiveness for their father, and ideally their father will admit his wrong to them and apologize and seek to make it right, but then they'll never really quite know what it would have been like if their father had not disappointed them in that way or not frightened them in that way, not abandoned them in that way, or not abused them in that way. And it's important to note that not everything fathers do and don't do can be defended as good and righteous. In fact, Jesus says at a certain point, which of you fathers, if your child asks for a loaf of bread, will give him a stone instead. Which of you fathers, if your child asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead. If you fathers who are evil, he says, <laughs> you're bad fathers. Even you bad fathers wouldn't do that to your children. How much more so your heavenly father who is good and holy, how much more so will he give good gifts to his children? And that's a curious thing because again, our frame of reference can trip us up. And we might think that God is a permissive father who only ever gives gifts. He's just a giver and he doesn't correct. He doesn't discipline. He doesn't chastise. He doesn't rebuke. And yet that's not what we find. If God is the good father, and he is, what we find is he disciplines the son in whom he delights. Arguably the scariest place to be is when God does not regard us as his children and he gives us over to whatever it is that we're going to do. He rejects us and lets us perhaps carry on and find out. Fool around and find out. The more you fool around, the more you're going to find out. That's the scariest place we can be. But if you're ever going through tough stuff and you're either thinking, God is allowing this to happen, to test me, to allow me to grow in patience and perseverance And I know, like James says, I should consider it pure joy when I face trials of many kinds. And so this is a trial, and it would seem that God is putting me in a place where my faith will be tested. Or if you're thinking, I have erred, I've sinned, and I'm being disciplined, I'm being corrected, you should be glad. If you can call out to God, Abba, Father, even in the midst of, maybe in particular, in the midst of trials you should be glad. But then on the flip side, you should also be glad and you should also pray for relief. And it's okay. It's good. In Judges, take note that the people are oppressed and they cry out and God sends a judge or appoints a judge or raises up a judge and the judge delivers the people. And the judge is not just judging Israel. The judge is judging Israel, resolving disputes, giving directions, giving orders, testifying to God's goodness, reminding the people of who God is in relation to their problems so that they do what they ought to do. But the judges are judging also people of other nations, in fact, kings of other nations, generals of other nations. This song of Deborah and Barak is on the heels of a great victory over an enemy king. And actually, more specifically, Sisera, the general of the army, 900 some iron chariots, Sisera has been killed in a rather brutal but effective way by a woman, Jael. And oh, by the way, this is interesting in part because hospitality would dictate that this Sisera came to her tent looking for sanctuary, looking for Hospitality, and she gave hospitality, but then after he fell asleep, she gave judgment. And she's praised for it by Deborah. The context here is judging the nations. And that's a curious thing, that the people who say God's people should never take up arms against wicked rulers, or we should never have war, we should never have law enforcement, or war, which requires force to remove an evil man or evil men. They don't know what to do with passages like this. And the reason they don't know what to do with passages like this is because they have become obsessed with the idea that turn the other cheek is all we're ever called to. But that's not sound biblical hermeneutics. That's not wise. That's not a wise way to approach the biblical text, that you would say, ah, Jesus said turn the other cheek. Yes, and sometimes you should. Don't be quick to be angry, slow to listen, quick to speak. Don't answer matters before you have heard them. If you do, it's to your shame and your folly. Also remember how Paul tells us that love is not easily offended. Could it be that that's more what turn the other cheek has to do with? Don't be short-tempered. Don't be so quick to be offended. And oh, by the way, Think about all of that in the context of the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the teachers of the law being offended by Jesus. They were offended, and they had no right to be, none whatsoever. They were offended because they were haughty. They were puffed up. They were full of themselves. They were self-righteous. Think of Jesus talking about the man who was so ashamed, he was so grieved by his own sin that he beat his breast, he couldn't even look up to heaven. He says, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Meanwhile, standing off a ways from him was a Pharisee who, with hands raised, eyes to heaven, thanked God that he was not like this sinner over there. Could that be actually a better fit for what Jesus is talking about when he says, if someone strikes you on the one cheek, turn to them the other also? Which, by the way, is not describing somebody trying to kill you it's describing someone trying to insult you and humiliate you. Even in that case where they're trying to humiliate you, trying to embarrass you, trying to provoke you to a fiery response, don't let them get under your skin. Now, if it rises to the level of someone trying to take your life, we have more to go on than just turn the other cheek. See, here's another problem that's introduced. If we say Jesus was commanding his disciples to pacifism, which is what's being described by those who say we should never be involved in politics, we should never have Christians in law enforcement or in the military or serving in civil magistracy roles where they might have to execute justice and judge. The problem with that is based on everything else in the Old Testament, which is not all just Old Covenant, based on everything God reveals of his standard of right judgment, which is referenced repeatedly, constantly by Jesus and the apostles in the New Testament, as though it's still authoritative, it's still instructive as to the character of God and the character God calls us to have. The problem with saying that Jesus was ordering absolute pacifism is that it essentially introduces a Jesus who is not the same yesterday, today, and forever. That introduces a Lord and Savior And since Jesus is the Son of God and co-equal, co-eternal, consubstantial with the Father and the Holy Spirit, what's introduced in that case is the Trinitarian God changing from the Old Testament to the New Testament and moving forward. And the reason I say that is because there's nothing regarding the forgiveness of sins and the hope of the resurrection that comes after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and your faith in his resurrection, his being the Christ, the Lord, there's nothing in that which excludes the use of force to restrain evil in the world. When Paul is correcting, scolding the New Testament church about not having exercised right judgment, he, at a certain point, takes them to task for when there's a dispute between them, going to the pagans, going to those who are not in the church to judge these matters. And he asks, isn't there anybody among you who has wisdom to judge these matters? It would be better for you to suffer wrong than for you to damage your testimony by taking each other to court. But then he doesn't stop there. The pacifistic, always turn the other cheek, especially with Christian's view, would find us very surprised that Paul is introducing a better solution for getting justice, which is within the church, you find somebody who has wisdom to judge these matters. You take the dispute to them. Because as Paul says, don't you know we're going to judge angels? Don't you know that the saints are going to judge the world? How much more so matters pertaining to this life? Which is to say, it's a relatively small thing, actually, compared with the eternal consequences which are all bound up in our judging the world, judging angels. It's a rather small thing by comparison that we would judge matters pertaining to this life. And yet, if we say Christians should never judge for any reason, we're also not obeying Christ who said, judge with right judgment. He said, don't judge by appearances, judge with right judgment. Don't judge by appearances, which would be, don't judge in a partial way, in the kind of way that accepts bribes. Or can be intimidated and bullied. Don't judge in the way that is materialistic or utilitarian, only thinking of debits and credits, humanly speaking. Judge with right judgment. What is right judgment? God's judgment, God's standard, His perfect standard. The ceremonial law has absolutely been fulfilled, but thou shalt not murder? That's not for the old covenant, that's for today. Have no other gods before me. That's not Old Covenant. That's for today. We need civil government. And how I know that is because God has given us civil government. The governing authority is a minister of God to reward those who do what is good, which is to say, some do good. And we need to be the kind who know what is good. That we would reward it. We would affirm it. We would encourage that. We would think on that. The cynics are being selfish when they deny that there is any good to do, and it would seem that they have grown weary in doing what is good. And when we think about Judges chapter 5 and the chiding that several tribes get for not having answered the call of battle, where were you? (laughs) Could have used your help. That chiding actually is appropriate in our day as well. It's appropriate for us to chide those who are cynical and they say, ah, there's no point. That sounds very faithless. If you know that this is a good thing to do and you're refusing to have anything to do with it and you're just going to stay home, stay comfortable, keep feeding yourself, just make sure that you're well-protected, when you're no help at all, you're always busy. Oh, I've got to wash my hair that night. Yeah, I couldn't possibly get back with you. God knows. God knows. If you're not helping to rescue those who are being led away to the slaughter, when you can, Proverbs would sober you up. You can't say, I didn't know. No, no, you knew. God knows you knew. So far, Wayne Grudem's Politics According to the Bible is proving very profitable to me. I'm finding it very encouraging and very well written and very well thought out. No, nations are not all the same, and nor should we suppose that nations existing in the first place at all is demonic, any more than we would suppose that God having instituted authorities in the church is an either-or. You don't say when there's a pastor or a board of elders in a church, hopefully, oh, you guys are being idolaters. This is demonic that you would even have pastors, that you would even have elders. I hope you don't think that, particularly because we're told to have (laughs) overseers and deacons. Faithful men should be entrusted to teach what is sound doctrine, to judge, to rule, to exercise authority under God. Now, if they forget themselves and they think that they are God, they should be removed if they can't be corrected. They might just be wolves in sheep's clothing. But even if they're imperfect, that's not proof that There's not a good purpose for God having put them in this position of authority. They're there to reward you if you do what is good, praise you, encourage you, honor you if you do what is good. And if somebody's trying to do something evil to you or to people you love or to the church or to the community, they're also in a position of authority so that they can punish that, so that they can curb that, so they can restrain evil. That's true in the home as well. This kind of thinking that the ideal would be if we didn't have anybody with authority, if we just didn't have anybody with power, then everything would be fine. The problem is that men are given power. Take the power away from all the men, and then we won't have all this strife, all this conflict. But wait a second. You're not being careful. You're not judging with right judgment. You're judging by appearances. God raises up judges in the Old Testament to deliver his people from oppression and it's not an either or that either god is delivering his people or he's using these judges to deliver his people the very last verse and then we'll move on into some other material the very last verse i want you to consider here in judges chapter 5 is verse 31 and the land had rest for 40 years i want to say something to those out there who are ready to throw in the towel, and they've already thrown in the towel, I'd like to encourage you to pick the towel back up, dry yourself off, wash your face, comb your hair, put on some fresh clothes. Let's get back to work. Those who are saying that America is doomed, and they live in America, we live in America, those who are cynically scoffing at anybody who would want to improve things, those who have grown weary in doing what is good are being disobedient. We're told not to grow weary in doing what is good. We're also told in Philippians, Paul's letter to the church of Philippi, to think on these things. How's that going for you? If you say, oh yeah, don't tell me anything good. Every good thing you try to tell me, I'm going to turn it into some snarky backhand because I think you're stupid and I don't want to listen. No, 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 no. You're being disobedient to God. If you regard Paul's epistles in the new testament as scripture which you should christian he says think on these things whatever is good whatever is true whatever is honorable whatever is praiseworthy if there's any excellent thing think on these things and this is an antidote to anxiety but then i think a lot of people their antidote to anxiety is to do the black pill thing they take the black pill and everything's just over right i'm over it and everything's just done And what that does, unfortunately, is in their own minds, it gives them a license to be completely selfish, to be completely self-absorbed. And they'll say, oh, I'm hurting and bad things have happened and it's woe is me. And I'm sorry that you're hurting. But if we're going to do anything about what's hurting you, you're going to have to stop throwing this tantrum and doing this pouty, cynical, discouraging thing that you're doing. The land had rest for 40 years. Just think with me for a moment. Suppose this circumstance that we're in as a country right now is temporary. Suppose this is bad. We're in a bad spot. But suppose, if you will, that God's people in Israel were in a bad spot sometimes for 10, 15, 20 years at a time as the kings of Canaan or Mesopotamia or wherever oppressed them by turn. God strengthened the hand of this pagan king against Israel to test them and to teach them war. Like Solomon says, there's a time for everything under the sun. There's a time for peace, but there's also a time for war. God wanted his people here to know war. And let's suppose that this moment right now is a time for us to know war. And then after this, Lord willing, will be a time for peace. And let's suppose for just a moment that God is looking to test us and he wants to see faithfulness in us. He wants to test our faithfulness and he wants to see faithfulness. And let's just suppose whether you read the United States of America in the Old Testament and whether you believe that this is the end times, no man knows the day or the hour that the Son of Man cometh, only the Father. You say, oh, I think this is the end days. Okay. And shouldn't that be all the more reason why you would be rolling up your sleeves and getting to work and saying what is true and doing what is right? I think you're afraid of being persecuted. I think that's what it is. I think you're afraid to suffer. That's what it really boils down to. But on the flip side, on the other hand, what if instead of needing Deborah or the equivalent of Deborah in your life to hold your hand in order for you to do what God has called you to do, what he's equipped you to do, what he wants you to do. What if instead of that, you sallied forth with boldness because God goes with you, because God has called you to this. He's equipped you. He's given you the ability and the time and the opportunity. And his word makes clear that this is a good thing for you to do. This is a good thing for you to say. This is a good place for you to go. These are good people for you to go talk with and help or encourage or comfort or correct, or confront, or rebuke, or call to repentance, or instruct, or reason with, or judge. Whether you believe that this is the end times, whether you believe that America is in the Old Testament, or we must be destroyed, oh, please let it be so. Deliver us. You could be acting more like the children of Israel brought out of Egypt, who said, oh, why did you even bring us out here to die in the desert? We should have stayed in Egypt. At least there were graves to be buried in there. You're being dramatic. Please stop. Please stop that. It's the opposite of helpful. What if, right? What if it pleased God to deliver us from our oppressors in this country? What if it pleased God to use us and those who are in positions of authority to deliver us in conjunction with his providence, his mighty right hand, to deliver us from those who oppress us, who do what is evil, who target the righteous and reward the wicked. What if God were to give us and this land rest for 20 years, for 40 years, for 80 years? That's what we see at various places here in Judges already in five chapters. We see the land had rest for 40 years. The land had rest for 80 years. I think That should motivate us more than it does. I think that should be more relevant to us than some unrealistic notion that unless the United States of America is going to last forever, there's no point in maintaining it. I mean, how would it be? Just think with me for just a moment, just a moment. How would it be if my pickup truck that I'm driving to work that I just drove up to Wyoming and back yesterday in for work. How would it be if I said, you know what, this pickup isn't in the book of Revelation and this pickup truck isn't going to last forever. And it's got some scratches here and there that weren't there when I first got it. It's not looking as good as it did when I first bought it. And the oil change is due and the tires need replaced, but this thing isn't going to last forever anyways. And so I'm just going to run it until the wheels fall off. No, I'm not going to replace the tires. No, no. I'm not going to get the oil changed. I'll just, I'll run it until it dies, until I die. No, 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 no. You can't tell me that that is good stewardship, particularly if it might run just fine for me. And then my wife, Lauren, wants to go pick up groceries or take the kids to football practice or what have you. Or my eldest son who's driving, he jumps in, he's driving now, and he is taking my wife to go pick up siblings, and the thing just completely fails while they're on the road, while they're out and about. That's what it's like. That's what I hear when I hear Christians saying that it's over. Throw in the towel. What I hear is dereliction of duty. What I hear is a lot of excuse making. I hear a lot of weariness in doing what is good, and I hear faithlessness, quite frankly, and disobedience, rationalized in real time. And what frustrates me about that is when it's being done out loud, it's not sufficient to rationalize the faithlessness and the disobedience and the cynicism and the self-pity and do so privately. It's being shared with others like, hey, everybody should also, well, thank you. Thank you very much. That's very helpful. I really appreciate you working to undo everything that I am trying to do. I'll turn the other cheek, (laughs) I guess. And give my other as well for you to slap because it's a slap in the face. If I'm trying so hard to get people, Christians, to be faithful here. And that's all I'm really, I hope, calling you to is faithfulness. Not because I have it all figured out, but by golly, if God doesn't, then we are in trouble. Then we're in real trouble. But of course, we're not in real trouble if we trust in God. And he does give wisdom to those who ask Believing and not doubting. And he does strengthen the hands and the arms of those who serve him. He does favor the humble. Whatever else happens, whatever else comes of our being faithful, let us be found faithful in our generation. That's all I'm trying to say. But with the time we have left this episode, I actually want to take a step back from current events and Having talked through the reading of Judges 5 already, having given a bit of a pep talk, I want to switch gears and talk about a trip I made to Wyoming yesterday for work. Driving up to Wyoming, I left out about 8 a.m., and I arrived on site about noon, noon noon-ish. I left about 8-ish, got there about noon-ish. I drove 411 miles, according to the app on my phone that I use to keep track of arrival and departure times for work, and therefore my mileage reimbursements and timesheets and all that good stuff. But that is to say, it was about 200 miles up and about 200 miles back, and it was good for the soul, and it reminded me, again, having not been up to Wyoming or Montana for Several years now since we moved to Colorado. I haven't been back except for my grandmother Mullet's funeral, which was not a long time after we moved here at all, just a few short months. I was reminded that there's a lot of land in Wyoming, and there are some beautiful sunrises and sunsets that you can see in that wide open country. It had been a minute since I saw pronghorn and wild horses. And cattle grazing like that. Colorado, you don't see cattle grazing quite as often like you do up in Wyoming and Montana, where they roam free on the open prairie with fencing, of course. But still, it's different. And so also people roam free, not like down here. A lot of times people look about as ragged down here as the cattle do. And I think for a lot of the same reasons. Yes, there are some people who are very sharp. The hipsters, the weekend hikers and campers and backpackers and off-roaders. It's very fashionable down here to have a Toyota Tacoma that you tool around with. You've got your pop-up camper, pop-up tent on the back. You've got the topper loaded with all manner of gear in the bed of the truck. That's pretty common, pretty typical to see that. And when you go north to Wyoming, it's more typical that you're going to see Chevys and Fords from the 90s with accessories. And they're ugly. Let's be honest, they're ugly trucks, but their owners love them. They look rough, but they don't look rugged quite like a lot of the people look rugged here in Colorado. It seems to me as though you have the beautiful people here, who are doing well, making lots of money, lots of leisure time, lots of time to invest in themselves, self-care and all that. They make sure that they're eating the best foods. They're getting plenty of rest, good exercise. There's lots to do for entertainment, but there was a conversation I had yesterday afternoon during a little bit of a break while we were waiting on an operator to restart a site that we had made... Programming changes, too. We had tested some things out for, verified that a valve was opening and closing like it should when we forced a signal, doing the loop checks. I was having some conversation with one of my associates, and he mentioned that they've been trying for a year and a half to get an I&E technician hired on to support the field up there in Wyoming. And there's one guy, he's an older guy, he's probably not as close to when he started his career as he is close to when he's going to retire, when he hopes to retire. That one guy, Willie is his name, is the INE tech, and they need another. And they've been trying for a year and a half to see if someone would go up there and help him, work with him, help support the automation, instrumentation, electrical, and the controls for these oil and gas sites. And that is to say, they can't seem to get somebody Who wants to do that? And in making conversation, my wheels did a little bit of turning and I thought I wouldn't be totally opposed (laughs) to moving to Wyoming with my family. And I talk like this and I think like this and some people are just aghast and I'm aghast that they're aghast. Not that I am opposed to staying in one spot, but then the cost of living here came up in the course of conversation with this associate of mine. He said he'd known several years ago Lots of men who moved to Colorado because things were kicking off down here. But the cost of living, he said, Yeah, I looked at the cost of living and I told some of these guys, he says, I told them, Yeah, you might make some decent money and there's work to do, but there are so many places to spend your money. You're excited about the shopping. Your wife is going to be out shopping and you're not going to have any money because she's spending it all faster than you can make it. And you're going to be working so much overtime. There's so many fun things to do, but you're going to be doing those fun things all the time so much that you might regret moving down there. And, you know, I got to thinking about our reasons for moving to Colorado in the first place. And there is something about going north to Wyoming for the first time since 2019, the year we moved here. It was November of 2019 that my grandmother's funeral was conducted. And there's something about going north to Wyoming about halfway almost home to Montana. And of course I like Montana better than Wyoming, but then it's almost like playing the tape in reverse a little ways, not the whole ways, but a little bit to go back up to Wyoming and to look around and to think about our reasons for moving here in the first place again. What were the reasons? The reasons were to get closer to quality healthcare for my wife and my children as well. I don't need much As long as somebody's going to keep refilling the prescription on my rescue inhaler for my asthma, I'm good. But my wife, my children, I want them, when they need a doctor, to have a good doctor. When they need a dentist, I want them to have a good dentist and not be told it's going to be several weeks out before we can schedule an appointment for an impacted tooth. It's causing some swelling in the face and they don't even call you back when they say, oh yeah, we'll check the schedule, see if we can move anything around. That's what we were dealing with in eastern Montana. And it was unacceptable. And unfortunately, there's sometimes a resting on laurels that happens in small communities. They have their people. They have their people that have been there for a long time. And everybody knows everybody. And they're pleasant, right? They're pleasant. They're friendly. They're cordial at first. And then if you ever criticize, if you ever object, if you ever judge that some of the things that they routinely do are not okay, Some of the ways that they manage things are actually unequal weights and measures. If you ever judge and say that is not okay, that's not true, the thing you just said, or that's not good, the thing you're doing, this thing you were doing is not good. Ooh, well, let's just say sometimes try that in a small town. (laughs) The song by Jason Aldean, sometimes try that in a small town has a dark underbelly side to it. Where you're trying to do a good thing, but it's not what the small town wants to do. And so you get the cold shoulder or you get unfriendliness of a bureaucratic nature. And that too, I wanted to get my family away from. Quite frankly, all these sons that I have, I wanted to get my family away from some of the dysfunctional aspects of living in a small town. And you might say, well, Garrett, but you just have to know, right? That's just a factor of knowing people. Yeah, but listen. Listen, here's what I've observed. I've lived in more populated parts of the country. I've lived in very sparsely populated parts of the country. What I've observed is that the city people judge themselves against the rural folk and they congratulate themselves. They pat themselves on the back for being very progressive, being very forward thinking. And as a matter of fact, they are so tolerant of everybody and everything except the values and the personalities in the way of life, that they themselves may have grown up in, in the rural part of the country that they were born in and raised in. They're embarrassed. They're humiliated, in fact, when it comes out that they still have some of those values. They still have some of those sensibilities and those habits, ways of relating. It's The worst possible thing that they would be associated with those people. And you know what? Those people can be put on a pedestal and you can Elevate the folk who live in small towns out of all proportion to how virtuous they actually are, if you're not careful. And what you'll miss if you do that is, in too many cases, the folks who live in the country, the rural folk, they do the exact thing that the metropolitan, the city folk do. They just do it in reverse. They're so welcoming, unless here comes somebody from the city who has some fresh ideas different ways of doing things. And you know what? It's ignorant. Let me just say that flat out. It's ignorant. It's foolish. It's wrongheaded to take every outside perspective and shred it rhetorically, scoff at it. That's foolish. Sometimes the city folk are wise in their own eyes and their foolish hearts are darkened because their standard of judgment is entirely fashion and they look at their fashion and look at the fashion of the city and they compare it against the fashion of the country, the rural folk, and they say, we're good people. How do we know? Because we're not like those people over there. Thank God that I'm not like that sinner over there. And then the folks out in the country, they say, thank God that I'm not like those sinners over there in the city. Thank God that I'm not driving a Tesla with my expensive Latte, my overpriced haircut, going to some mega church with fog machines and laser light show and an arcade for the kids in lieu of Sunday school. Thank God that I'm not like that sinner over there. Do you know what? It's a trap. <laughs> it's <laughs> That's not judging with right judgment. That's judging by appearances. You need to know more than whether somebody grew up in the city Or whether they grew up in the country. You need to know more than that. And I think that's half the reason why a lot of city folk are so distrustful towards the people who live out in the country and the folks who live out in the country are so distrustful towards those who live in the city because they're so used to actually judging by appearances. Hey, do I recognize this person? Yes. Okay, then I trust them. Or at least I know what to do with them. And as long as I know what to do with them, then I feel safe because. I know decades worth of gossip about them and their family. And so it's pre-mapped. It's pre-programmed. All of the kinds of things I'm going to say to them, about them, are going to follow these well-worn paths, how I relate. And it may look very different, but don't let that fool you. The folks in the city do a similar sort of a thing with the folks from the country, except they're doing it more of a macro way. They're saying... I look at you, and if I think that you're from the country, if I think you're from a small town, I've got a certain set of pre-programmed responses. If I think that you vote Republican, if I think you're a conservative, if I think you're a conservative Christian who votes Republican, I have a pre-programmed response. And with all of the above, it's not, listen, it's not all the corporate media's fault, and it's not all politicians' fault, and it's not all the fault of the public schools. Actually, when you really boil it all down, it's our fault individually, insofar as we let dishonest charlatans lead us around by the nose, bribe and bully us by turn out of judging with right judgment. It's our fault. We each individually are at fault when we do that. We're actually the ones making things worse. Part of the reason why I talk so much about education, for instance is because it grieves me. It frustrates and annoys me to no end that we know as much as we do. We know that the public schools are as bad as they are. And yet the majority of children in America are still being sent to them. Right now, it's a Friday morning, 846, quarter till nine, just about. And most of America's children are in a public school classroom right now. And in most cases, that's because the parents chose to send their children into those schools. And you can say, oh, it's the system. It's the Democrat Party. It's the media. It's Facebook and Twitter and it's Google's fault. But when you don't do anything about it, it's your fault actually. And that's actually half the reason why I wrote and this is why we homeschool because I wasn't expecting not even just a tiny, tiny bit that politicians are going to pick up my book and say, ooh, yeah, you know what we should do. And I wasn't expecting that social media executives, Mark Zuckerberg and whoever else, were going to pick up my book and they were going to say, oh, hey, yeah, this guy's got a really great point. Would I love that? Yes. Would that be fantastic? Yes. I actually wasn't expecting that people highly placed in denominations, or seminaries or universities were going to pick up my book and say, ah, man, some really good stuff here. But I was thinking, you know what? If individual moms and dads who are homeschooling can be encouraged, then that's a good thing. If individual moms and dads who've been told a lie, oh, you can't do it, you couldn't do it, you couldn't possibly, even if they have a pretty good amount of surplus income, they have the disposable wealth, they have a good mind, but they've been told you can't, don't even try. oh, that would be such a mess. Oh, that would put so much strain on your marriage. Oh, do you really want to have your kids not able to play sports and socialize? Do you really want them to miss out on everything that we grew up with i It's not that bad. it's not that bad the public schools aren't that bad, yeah, no, just just give it time. This will all come back around. I want to convince moms and dads who've been told a lot of nonsense and they're losing their kids, and they feel it, they sense that they're losing their kids, I want to tell them, this is why we homeschool. And maybe that'll be persuasive. Maybe it'll be encouraging. Maybe it'll be challenging. And then also maybe, if enough parents felt confident enough in their reasons to give their reasons too, not just my reasons, but to give their reasons, maybe, just maybe, at a certain point, the people who are constantly obsessively checking the polls, licking their finger, holding it up to see which way the wind blows, those people would then say, yeah, this is a great idea. We should support this. We should affirm this. This is a good thing that we should reward. But what's interesting is whether we're talking about civil government or church polity or the academy or the media, what they reward, what they praise, what they affirm really tells you all you need to know about what they believe is good what they condemn criticize scandalize harry and harass tells you everything you need to know about what they think is evil and so in some sense we're missing the point when we point the finger and we say oh can you believe that they're doing that can you believe that they're saying that all the while avoiding any talk of what is good and evil If we're not actually getting down to brass tacks of what is good and how we know, then we're not actually persuading anybody. Now, there is a time to say, regardless what this person believes is good, they need to be stopped. Their vision of the good life is actually very corrupt. They're a very corrupt person and they're doing a great deal of harm. Every villain, in other words, is the hero of their own story. And the sooner you know that, the sooner you realize that, the sooner you'll look a little farther, look a little deeper, listen a little more closely to what people say and what they do and not trust so much that if they're confident, well, then they're probably doing everything just fine. They're probably okay. Well, they seem like a nice person. Yeah, because they think they're doing what is good, but is it actually a good thing? What is their definition of good predicated on? And is it good? For that matter too, this gets to the root of what we don't do. So all of the people who are passive, disengaged, silent, when they should do and they should speak, they're telling you something about what they believe would be evil. As in, it seems evil in their eyes to do what you believe would be good for them to do. It seems evil in their minds that they would say the things that you believe are true for them to say. But then, again, you have to ask the question of what is their standard? What is their measure? If what is evil is measured against their vision of the good life and anything which would detract from their vision of the good life is evil, therefore, you really have to know what people's vision of the good life is. To put it another way, let's hypothetically suppose that A affluent, upper-middle-class couple, two professionals. They both went to college. They got their bachelor's degrees, the man and the woman, husband and wife. They worked several years, paid off their student loans, bought a house together, paid that down, got a really great interest rate because their credit was really good, bought vehicles, paid them off very quickly. They keep their household expenses modest, but that means also that they buy good-quality things with cash, not with credit, and then they maintain them, and they do everything materially that they should do to have a comfortable life, to have a good image, and to be well-rested, not stressed out, not agitated, not anxious for anything, not fearful. They live securely and comfortably. They have children on a schedule. They have an answer when people ask them, how many children do you think you'll have, and when do you think you want to have children, Are you hoping for a boy or a girl? Have you talked about where you're going to send your kids to school or how you're going to educate them? They have all of that mapped out and it's very pleasant and it's very comfortable and it's very rewarding. And they're thought well of, well, let's suppose this hypothetical couple attended a decent public school. They got a decent public education. Their parents were involved in bringing them up in the way that they should go and their interest is to be plugged into a good church. Their kids go to a good church and they also get Bible instruction at home and then they send them off to a public school. And then they notice that, hey, there's quite a lot that's not okay in what my kids are being taught and what's happening in the public schools more broadly in America. And they start thinking over the summer and talking over the summer about homeschooling and then they kind of tease that to their extended family. They tease that to their friends and their professional associates, that they're thinking about homeschooling. What is at risk if they homeschool? What's at risk is not that they'll never be successful. They're already successful. What's at risk is that they will cease to be successful. Kind of like what Satan says to God about Job. Job, in the Old Testament, is a blameless man in his generation, righteous God says, have you considered my servant Job? Satan says, he only praises you. He only worships you. He only honors you because you've blessed him. Take away those blessings. He'll curse you to your face. Now imagine that back and forth in the book of Job is now instead a back and forth between either the husband and father and his friends and associates and extended family, or between the wife and mother and her friends and associates and extended family. And now the suggestion has been made that the only reason they have a good marriage, they have a nice house, they have nice vehicles, they have good furniture, and they live this happy social life, the only reason for all of that is because they haven't done a hard thing, an unconventional thing like homeschooling. The choice they're confronted with in pulling their kids out, is not just do I put my nose to the grindstone to figure out how to teach my own kids, how to teach these subjects. Do I dust off my knowledge of algebra, or English grammar, or history, or biology, or whatever it is, right? They're also having to reckon with whether they can adjust their vision of the good life more broadly. Can they adjust their schedule? Can they adjust their relationship with their extended family, possibly, or their friends? And that's a difficult thing for some people to even consider doing. Why upset the apple cart if this is kind of working right now? We don't want to upset the apple cart. We want to conserve the gains, protect them, secure them. We want to maintain the good life that we have made for ourselves. That's what they're thinking. And then on the other end of the equation, you've got perhaps those who they just barely made it through high school and they entered the workforce and they do low wage earning work and they get by, right? They pay the rent, but maybe they had kids at the start with somebody that they weren't married to. And then they got married and then they had some more kids. And They just barely get by financially, their budget is tight, and they don't have a strong extended family that they can rely on. On the flip side, they don't have an extended family that's going to give them a lot of flack necessarily, but neither will that extended family be a big help, right? It's kind of a wash. It cancels out. On the one hand, they don't get a lot of opposition, but on the other hand, they're not going to get a lot of support either their circle of friends, they're not real close with. And in part, they've learned to distance themselves because their broader circle of friends from years ago weren't the most supportive of trying to settle down, be responsible, get married, raise these kids, maybe get to church, get their kids reading the Bible and going to youth group and having good friends. You know, maybe they're looking at, This whole business, like, if we do everything that we're supposed to, maybe we can make up for lost time. Maybe we can be successful in a way nobody we're close to or that we've been close to ever has been. But maybe we can have that vision of the good life that these upper middle class people do. They're not aspiring to be rich, but they just want to be self-sufficient. They want to be self-sustaining. They want to have a good marriage, but they don't necessarily know what that looks like. They want to have good friends who encourage them to do the right things and counsel them away from doing things they shouldn't do. They want to have good friends that they can hang out with and laugh with and share a meal together with. They want to have that good life that they're seeing the upper middle class people live, even though they're coming out of poverty, just barely, lower middle class. But they're very concerned that the education their kids are going to get won't necessarily help their kids to be successful, not professionally preparing them with the skills that they're going to need to be able to make a living themselves. Also, they're concerned increasingly morally, spiritually, mentally, emotionally. How are their kids going to fare if going to these schools, they're bullied, they're harassed, they're just marinating all day in chaos and confusion? Not getting a good education, but also getting a lot of bad influences, even from the schools themselves, even from the top-down approach to dictating to local schools, from the Department of Education, from this White House and its administration, gender theory, critical race theory, hostility towards free market capitalism, hostility towards Christian theism. And so now they're weighing and measuring, do we get our kids out of here? Do we homeschool our kids? I mean, maybe we could make it work, even if we can't make it work necessarily. We're not sure how. Let's just trust the good Lord, and let's just jump in with both feet. Whereas the upper middle class family has a vision of the good life in which they maintain the standard of living that they've grown accustomed to, and it just gets better and better from here, like a fine wine that's aged. It's just all the more delicious and rare, and it's all the more enjoyable for how rare it is. This other family I'm describing has a vision of the good life in which being self-sustaining and healthy and stable and staying together and loving and supporting one another and having a happy family where that's attainable, that's as close to a vision of the good life as they have. And when they don't see it as attainable, they don't see it as realistic. They see increasingly the deck is stacked against their being able to have that vision of the good life realized. That's where you start to see a level of frustration and anger and fear and anxiety. And why I mention these two different kinds of scenarios is because one of the implications, one of the possible outgrowths of efforts by myself and others, certainly not just me, but let's just take me for instance. I'm thinking through what I'm trying to encourage people to do with homeschooling. I, I would encourage you to homeschool and I would encourage you to push for legislation that is going to reward those who do the good thing of homeschooling their kids, giving them a good education, training them up in the way that they should go so that when they're older, they won't depart from it. One of the implications of that is that as that second couple, that second family I'm describing starts trying to figure out, okay, can we make this work? How can we make this work? They're going to be increasingly operating in proximity to the kind of family in the first scenario that has decided to homeschool their kids. And one of my big hopes is we brace ourselves all around for, on the one hand, not being hostile towards those who are coming from broken homes, who are coming from not having advanced degrees, not being white collar professionals, doctors, lawyers, engineers. We don't look down on them And exclude them and box them out because, well, you're not really our type of people. You know, we go golfing and you go bowling. You're you're the putt-putt people and we're the 18 holes every weekend type people. You know, we're the cocktails at the country club on a Saturday afternoon type people. You're the couple of beers out back in your unkempt yard Type people. You know, we just, we don't really mix. And on the flip side, I mean, it's just as likely, it's just as probable that the people who are desperate and they're poor, and this is just a Hail Mary almost, to try and salvage a vision of the good life being attainable for their children, those type people, they're going to have to resist the temptation to resent and to envy and to covet what looks like it just comes very easily for that first type of family. You know, the first type of family is trying to be protective of what they've built up and they've accumulated in the way of material, wealth, reputation, lifestyle, routine. That second type of family is going to have to resist the temptation to resent all that. But I think part of how that happens, that there would be no partiality, is actually already given to us in God's word. We're told Old Testament, New Testament show no partiality. And so what you do is, if those who are affluent are expecting special preferential treatment, warn them patiently, kindly, and don't be so deferential (laughs) if they're being pushy. Now, if they're being confident, don't call that pushiness just because you're jealous, please learn from those who have been doing it longer and they have more wherewithal. If they have the wherewithal to try a dozen things and then they hone in on the one or two things that they're like, yeah, this this has worked really well for us. Listen, right? Listen and get that benefit that you can't afford to go and find for yourself. Maybe you can't afford to try 12 things. You don't have the time, you don't have the money, you don't have the energy, you don't have the attention to spare, You just need one or two things that are gonna work well. And somebody to talk with, to ask for advice. Try and have a good reputation, but don't be so deferential that we create an unhealthy spiritual environment for anybody. All sides, always round. You don't want that. But then the flip side is for those who are of means, who are homeschooling their kids, maybe they've been homeschooling for quite some time. They're killing it. They're just very successful. Well, they're gonna have to. Be patient with those who are rough around the edges. If you want to do a good deed, homeschooling families that are comfortable, that are keeping it all balanced and juggled without skipping a beat, without breaking a sweat, if you want to do a lot of good, come alongside some of these families that are considering homeschooling or they are homeschooling. They just started coming alongside them and showing them what you do for curriculum or how you manage some of these things, that is a great, great blessing. And if you can do that without condescension, without hubris, you're also going to have to be prepared to welcome those people in as equals. If they do well, if they do well and they succeed, you should be happy and just be on guard. That there's not some pride of superiority. If they start to do well and they're doing as well as you're doing, or if their kids are doing as well as your kids, don't feel threatened by that. Their challenge is going to be to not feel threatened by how well your kids are already doing. But if they embrace that challenge, then match them, match that energy and embrace the challenge of not feeling threatened. If your kids are doing every bit as well as their kids, their kids are doing every bit as well as your kids. And This is part of how we can push back on the Marxist propaganda. It really is. This is part of how the church can comprehensively defeat the siren song of communism in this country, which is very real. It is very much active in our public schools, in our media. This just drip, drip, drip of propaganda, like poison into the water supply of the information that we are bringing in. And we need to be Overcoming evil with what is good. Think of it this way. If the line of the Marxist agitators, the community organizers, if their line is that the poor are poor because the rich took the whole pie and they're off eating it in their mansion, now there's no pie left for you. If that's their line and we want to be people who trust in the good Lord above and A poor man comes in. A poor family comes in to our church. And here is the rich man. Here is the rich family. And they've brought pie. In fact, they baked some additional pies. And they brought the pies. And they're offering you a slice. Don't be like, yeah, no, I don't want any of your pie. No. Say thank you. Have some pie with them. But see, one of the things you have to understand is... As a nation moves further and further away from weighing and measuring, judging with right judgment based on what God has objectively said is good, where God lays out the vision of the good life for us, it affects every aspect of how we relate. What is normative is not just a problem in the political space with what laws are written, what policies are enacted, whether the checks and balances of the three separate branches of government function as they're supposed to, you know, the legislature legislates, the executive branch executes the laws, but they don't write laws. The judicial branch judges cases against the law and the law against the constitution, but they don't write the laws and they don't execute the laws. It's not just all that that's affected. It's not just high taxes and it's not just over-regulation. And this is where a certain class of conservative, or should I say a certain class of Republican anyways, that says, we don't need to be getting into culture war. You're all wrong. You're so wrong. You couldn't be any more wrong. Culture is upstream of what's happening economically right now and what's happening politically. And what's upstream of the cultural issue is the problem with whether we do what is evil in God's sight. But we do whatever is right in our own eyes. One of the big things you should understand about the book of Judges is That the people did, again, what was evil in the sight of Yahweh. And so God gave them over to their enemies to be oppressed. And then the people cried out. And God raised up a judge who delivered Israel from her oppressors. But then there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Is the other side of the coin to Israel doing what was evil in the sight of Yahweh? By all means, mind your affairs. Manage your business. Your household, I'm convinced, is your primary responsibility. My wife is my primary responsibility. If I am all over town helping everybody else's wives and I'm not taking care of my wife, God is not pleased by that. That is not a good godly way to relate. If I'm all over town helping everybody else's kids and I'm neglecting my kids, God is not pleased by that. And so there has to be a balance, right? There has to be some weighing and measuring. It's good for me to show partiality to my wife, to my children, in the sense of I provide for them and I protect them first, but not I only think of providing and protecting in terms of what I do directly, what I say directly to my wife and my kids. Actually, as a matter of fact, if you want to think down the road a few decades, it could be like the woman wisdom in Proverbs who sends her handmaidens out to call to the simple, come, join me for a meal, listen to my instruction, listen to my sayings and become wise. It could be that those who have some things figured out with educating their children and having a healthy marriage actually are providing and protecting in relation to the members of their own household when they see also to encouraging Instructing, supporting, as they're able to cheerfully, others. If I can encourage a father to love his children well, to love his wife well, to lead them well, to provide for them at a higher level sufficiently, to protect them, give that a couple of decades and his kids, his wife, are more of a blessing to my kids and my wife. And so I'm still actually doing what I should do in relation to my wife, and my children. But then Jesus says the second greatest commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so if I love my neighbor as myself, and I'm a husband and I'm a father, and I see that my neighbor is a husband and a father, if I love my neighbor as myself, I want my neighbor to be a good husband to his wife just like I want to be a good husband to my wife. And whatever I figure out, I want to share with him so that he also can love his wife well. He can be a good father. He can be a man at peace with God. And part of why all of this is coming to mind with my trip to Wyoming and back yesterday, 411, 411 miles. Part of the reason why it comes to mind is because I do believe that the Lord brought us here when he did for a good purpose. And I don't regret our being here. I have wondered at times, all right, should we go somewhere else? Should we move somewhere else? And I am not going to say that we won't ever. I'm not going to say that. If the Lord bids us go somewhere else, we are going to go somewhere else. If the Lord bids us stay, we're going to stay. I do pray that the Lord will help us to get our own home. And there's a lot that factors into whether homes are affordable, that is bigger than just my working hard, my putting in enough hours, our being frugal enough. I guess we'll just eat spicy ramen for the next several years. Ah, but that still wouldn't be enough, right? Still wouldn't cut it. The Lord brought us here for a good purpose when he did, I trust. And he brought us into proximity with these other families at the time that he did in the way that he did for a good purpose. And I want to be a blessing to these families, to these men I've come to know. I want my wife to be a blessing to their wives. I want my children to be a blessing to their children. I also want the reverse. I want to be blessed by these men. I want my wife to be blessed by their wives. I want my children to be blessed by their children. I want our family to be blessed by their families. And if you scale that up, what you get very quickly, what you get very, very soon is an awareness that there are some problems and concerns and difficulties that are common to all of us. And so if we get together and we talk about, okay, what do we do about this? Man, what's going on? What is that? That's politics. This is why we're doing the Ecclesia Forum, the second Sunday evening of each month moving forward. How do I love my neighbor as I love myself and not care whether he becomes homeless, whether his kids are getting three square meals a day, whether his wife can afford proper attire, whether they live in a safe neighborhood. If I love my neighbor and if my neighbor loves me, we are mutually invested in securing not only our family, but one another's. We're mutually invested. And so then we have to sit down and reason together and discuss and figure out what the consensus is. What could we do that would be a benefit to all parties concerned and more besides, how do we love our neighbor well here? And you scale that up and maybe we get somewhere. We get somewhere in the city of Greeley and in Weld County and in the state of Colorado. And maybe you scale that up and pretty soon we're starting to influence others in neighboring cities, in neighboring counties, in neighboring states, and in the country more broadly. And maybe that is something of what Jesus was getting at when he said, let your light so shine before all men that they might see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. If we're cynical, I say we've lost our saltiness. We've lost our savor. Don't be cynical. Now that may not mean we're all investing in the same ways in the same places or that we all agree about What is a wise investment of our time, attention, resources? But for a surety, we should be investing what God has entrusted to us. That can't be debated. Part of how we should be investing ourselves, I'm convinced, is in being quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. Because that's a prerequisite to being able to make decisions together. If you're always offended, too easily offended, if you're always talking over the other person, never listening to what they have to say, you can't make decisions together. Everybody just gets angry, frustrated, and then goes into either a fight mode or flight mode. If an opportunity came up for us to actually make it affordable or to help facilitate it being affordable for young families to homeschool their kids, for the wife to stay home, homeschool the kids, keep the home, husband to make what he makes and to save the extra, and to buy and own their own home, to own their own property, if we could help to facilitate that by affecting the sensibilities of those who write the laws, execute the laws, and interpret the laws, judging whether they're constitutional, if we could influence that, I firmly believe that that would be pleasing in the sight of the Lord our God. And the people who are very hostile to any tweaks, any changes, because they're already sending their kids to a school where their kids get a fantastic education. They make well in excess of what is needed to support their family's lifestyle with just the husband working. They already own a home and they've paid it off and they have land besides. In fact, they own a few properties and they rent them out. If those type of people say, we have no need of you. We don't want to hear what you have to say. In fact, we see that you're struggling and we find that to be a reason to not listen to you. We find that to be a reason to not see you as credible and not put any stock in anything that you have to say. Well, then what is that but partiality? If those type of people claim to being Christians and they claim Christ as their Lord, they should be reminded to obey Christ. If they don't obey him, then they don't love him. And if they don't love him, then do they actually know him? Maybe they're not actually Christians. And that's another reason why this has to be addressed, because this ends up being another way that the godless pry children away from faith in Christ. They pry husbands and wives apart from one another. They break up the fellowship of dear friends. The godless will say, yeah, look at these Christians over here. They claim to be Christians, but look what they're doing. Look what they're saying. Look what they're not doing. Look what they're not saying. And you don't just say how high whenever the godless start criticizing, but neither should we be indifferent to our forthcoming question why aren't you why did you say that why are you doing this this thing you are not doing would be good for you to do why aren't you doing it this thing you are doing is not good why won't you listen when we implore you to do what is right to do what is good it should grieve us if we're indifferent about doing what is good it should grieve us if we're indifferent about whether some of the things we're saying are hurtful and abusive and not true, that should grieve us. But what would be better than being grieved clearly is doing what is good and being rewarded for it. And you should be motivated by rewards. And you should expect that there are rewards for those who do what is pleasing to God, who love God, who keep his commandments, who teach others to keep his commandments. For far too long, we have been inundated with, we've been marinated in, This idea that if God really loves us, he's never going to call us to do anything, tell us to be about anything. He's never going to command us, as if authority and love are mutually exclusive to the extent that somebody has authority over us, they must not love us. If they actually wield that authority to tell us, do this, don't do that. And part of the reason may be we've seen people abuse authority, but then How much of the reason we're seeing people abuse authority is because we're not under authority? I would say 100%. We see authority abused when those who claim authority don't respect God's authority. So they want to wield authority, but they don't want to be under authority. They don't want to be in subjection themselves. Instead of wanting to be free from anybody being in authority over us, we should want to be under good authority that rewards authority those who do what is good. I am glad that I have people with authority over me, even if they're not perfect people. And oh, by the way, none of them are. I'm glad that I have people in authority over me so that sometimes I can go to them and I can say, hey, I don't know what to do here. What should I do here? What would you like me to do next? Sometimes that is a huge relief and it actually frees you up to enjoy life when you know that the thing you are doing is approved and it is a good thing to do and it will be rewarded. It is beneficial. It is helpful. It is part of a larger effort that will be successful. And you get some of the enjoyment of it being successful. If you're part of it being made successful, what I should want, what you should want, what we should want is for those who are in positions of authority over us to make good choices, to give us good direction, to be honest, to themselves be under the authority of God so that they actually know what is good to reward, so that they actually know what is evil to punish. Why do we want those in authority to punish evil? Well, for one thing, because we want evil to be restrained so that evil does not run roughshod over we ourselves and our loved ones and everything that we try to build. Every bit of the fruit of our labors can be destroyed and consumed by evil When evil is not restrained. And this is a good function of government that it would restrain evil and punish evil. And that's not at all incongruous with the grace of God. In fact, it's one of the aspects of the grace of God that he restrains evil. Think again about the story of Job and the evil that Satan does to Job. Job doesn't deserve that, but then God does restrain the evil that Satan can do to Job. Don't kill him. And you think, man, what kind of a restraint is that? He seems like by the end of it, he kind of wants to die. And he's wondering why he was even born alive in the first place. Some mercy, some grace. Do you know why <laughs> it's a mercy and a grace? Because there's life after all of that. It's not the end. His children die. That's horrible. He loses his servants. He loses his livestock. He loses his health. Even his relationship with his wife is affected and impacted negatively. When she says, curse God and die, there's cynicism for you. There is the cynic. But then there's life after. And he has other sons and daughters. And his daughters are the most beautiful in the land, it says, which just goes to show that beauty, women being beautiful is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. That would probably help our testimony too if we, some of us, stopped thinking of a woman being beautiful as something to repent of or to call for repentance of. He's wealthy again. Let's not call people to repent of having some wealth. Call them to not abuse the wealth that they have and oppress the poor. Call them to be generous, cheerfully. With their wealth. Call them to be good stewards and to serve God with their wealth. Don't call them to repent of having wealth. If they did dishonest things to get the wealth, well, then let's give due process and the benefit of the doubt and the presumption of innocence, but let's investigate that. Let's get to the bottom of it. If they became wealthy through fraud and deceit, thieving, corruption, don't let their having wealth and power and connections hold you back from calling them to repentance. But if they earned it by the sweat of their brow and sound management of their affairs, you know what would be a lot better than you envying them and coveting what they have and resenting that they have it and you don't. What would be a lot better is ask them to teach you their ways so that you also can have your own. That would be wise. That's what the woman wisdom does in Proverbs. Here she has a house with seven pillars. She has her table. She has her animals. She has her wine. She has her servants. She has property. She has means. She has a motive to instruct the simple of the town. And she makes an opportunity. She sends her maidservants out. And the invitation is not just a meal. There's a short term. If you're hungry, hey, I got some food. Come on over. Do you want something to drink? I've got some mixed wine. Here, have a cup. While you're here actually, could I talk with you guys about something I'm observing in your way of relating to the business of our town? I wanna talk with you guys about some things that are concerning to me about the welfare of the city we live in. I wanna inform you about some things that you maybe didn't know were happening or you didn't realize. I want you to be wise about these things. I want you to be informed and to make good decisions. And if you will, It'll go well with you. It will be the case that you have long life and pleasant days and you're blessed. And you too can have a house with seven pillars and your own table and your own animals and your own mixed wine. You too can have male servants and female servants. Why is that an extension of the wisdom of the woman wisdom? She's being still wiser when she gives instruction to the simple because how the simple are going to vote, or not vote, how they're going to hold accountable people in the community, how they're gonna hold themselves accountable directly impacts whether it's sustainable for the woman wisdom to have these things and not have them stolen, not have them destroyed in a fire by those who are envious and jealous. Not for no reason do those who acquire wealth start getting involved in the community. It's wise for them to do that, actually. It would be unwise for them to neglect that. They do have not just a responsibility, but they have a a definite interest in the community that they live in, being safer, cleaner, more prosperous, more just, more peaceful, more beautiful. They have an interest in all of that, and it's fine for them to have an interest in that. And it's fine for you to have an interest. It's not sinful. It's not wicked. It's not fleshly. And just because there are plenty of people who are corrupt, who engage with these things... In a sinful way that doesn't mean that the thing itself is inherently sinful that's true of every sphere of human activity because every sphere of human activity is affected by sin and what would we say oh my dad was abusive and so i don't ever want to be a father and i don't want to have children because i might abuse my children too No, no 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 you know what would be the most therapeutic the most healing thing not waiting on your dad to Repent of his abusing you when you were younger, his tormenting you, his abandoning you when you were younger. What would be the most healing thing is you look to God as your father and by God's grace, you figure out how to be a good dad yourself. As Marcus Aurelius would say, the best revenge is to be unlike him who performed the injury. That has an application in how you approach parenting any children the Lord may bless you with. You may say, I don't want to get married. My mom was just awful to my father. They fought all the time. It was traumatic growing up, seeing the way that they would talk to each other, the way they would treat each other. I don't want that. I'm not ever going to get married. No, 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 no. You know what? Don't wait for some perfect example in living color to show you what a healthy marriage is. Looks like. Look to Christ's relationship with the church to give you a perfect picture of how the husband should relate to his wife, how the wife should relate to her husband. And then you be someone else's example, a living illustration, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, is your active obedience. That's better than sacrifice. And oh, by the way, there's another way in which the cynics are being unwise and disobedient in that they seem to imply that sacrificing all of these things is how we will show our devotion to God. If we sacrifice marriage, if we sacrifice children, if we sacrifice friendships, if we sacrifice jobs and wealth, if we sacrifice having material possessions that are of good quality, that do what they're supposed to do, and they look nice while they're doing it, We sacrifice our communities, our states, our nation. That will please God, right? We'll offer all of this up on the altar to God for Him to consume it in fire, and then we will know that we are devoted to God. No, you know what? God would call you to be willing to forfeit all of that if someone would destroy it or take it away from you to try and get you to stop obeying God. But While you have it, it's clear God is even more pleased by you looking for how to live in relation to these things in a way that's pleasing to God, in a way that loves God and obeys God. He desires obedience rather than sacrifice. So what does obedience look like? If you don't pay any attention to his commands and you say, oh, I'm under grace, grace, grace. I have faith and grace and that's all I need. No obedience needed. You're a liar, John would say. First John, in the New Testament, would call you a liar. You say you love him, prove it. James says a very similar thing. Show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith without works is dead. You say you have faith. I don't believe you. I think you're a liar. John would say, he's very blunt about this, but he says it in a very blunt way because sometimes we are very thick-headed and we're very stubborn and stiff-necked and... Hard of hearing. Years ago, before my grandpa Mullet passed away, his hearing was not good. And if I wanted to carry on a conversation with him before he started to succumb to dementia, if I wanted to carry on a conversation with him, I had to talk louder. And it wasn't that I was trying to be rude or disrespectful. If he wouldn't have been hard of hearing, I would have spoken at a normal volume. But because I wanted to have a relationship with him and I wanted to talk with him, I had to speak a little bit louder so he could be able to hear me. And sometimes that's what it looks like when people don't believe that you actually care about them. You have to say it a little more forcefully. When people don't want to hear a correction, but they badly need to because this is urgent, you have to say it a little louder to make sure that they hear it. There was an incident just yesterday, actually, as my wife was driving somewhere with our oldest son, or I should say she was in the passenger seat, and he was driving because Josiah has his learner's permit, and he's trying to get his 40 hours so that he can get his full-fledged driver's license. And someone pulled right out in front of him. They were in the other lane, and he was trying to turn onto a road, and they switched lanes even though he clearly had his turn signal on. He was about to merge. They changed lanes, and there was going to be a collision. And Lauren told me that was the loudest she had ever spoken to him while he— has been driving. And I don't know exactly what she said, but it was probably something along the lines of stop. Maybe. Now, if she said it loudly and it scared him and there was nothing coming, there was no vehicle coming, she was just yelling at him. Well, then we have a problem. And maybe we need to take a look at, okay, how are we talking to our kids? But if there's a car coming and he wasn't hearing her when she said it quietly or softly, or he might not have heard it in time, to avoid a collision, if he didn't see the danger coming, and then she said, stop, and then he stopped, and then he saw the vehicle coming, well, then, in hindsight, what we don't do is complain that she was yelling, whoa, calm down, instead, the appropriate response is to say, thank you, thank you for warning me, whew, I didn't see them coming at all, last I looked, they were in the other lane, wow, that could have been bad, whew, All of this going back to Judges chapter 5. And I'll leave you with this. Judges chapter 5, there are curses and there are blessings. There are praises. There's honor and glory for doing the right thing. Recognition of God having delivered his people. And also human agents who did the brave thing. They did the courageous thing. Most blessed of women be Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women, most blessed. She was hospitable. She was charitable. He asked for water. She gave him milk. And then she killed him because he was an enemy to God's people and to God. Keep in mind, this is descriptive, not necessarily prescriptive. But then on the other hand, there's no rebuke. There's no correction. The phrase that's used often is, God gave so-and-so over into the hand of such-and-such a person or such-and-such a kingdom or such-and-such a people. Always... God has a purpose. He's not random about it. God will judge righteously. We also should judge with right judgment. And sometimes that just means we agree with God. We just agree with God and we don't mourn. We may not celebrate, but we soberly say, yes, that is good. That's appropriate. There was an appropriate exercise of restraint on evil. And yes, that was evil. And this here that God did was good. And this thing that so-and-so did, was good because God had called them to it and equipped them for it and accomplished his purposes. That's what judging with right judgment means. That really also is what it means to be righteous. You do the right thing. You do what is right and you have a right spirit and a right heart and a right attitude and a right mindset. And that comes from taking your cues from God, agreeing with him. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless.